Our scripture reading again is from 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, the Bible says, but, you, but ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into this marvelous light. That you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into this marvelous light. Our message this Sabbath is entitled, The Power of the Tabernacle. The Power of the Tabernacle. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word. Now, Lord, more than ever, I ask that you make me just a nail upon the wall, a rusty, sorry nail, Lord. But upon that nail, Lord, I ask that you hang a portrait of Jesus Christ. Let Eric Walsh not be seen or heard. Instead, Father, let us hear a word from the throne room of grace. This is our prayer in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. So just a little recap, since it's been a few weeks. We've been looking at the sanctuary, and this is a, a unique message in many ways to the Adventist church, although uh, many, many churches study the sanctuary. Um, and uh, just to remind you, you these that are the, the white panels all the way around, um, the linen, about seven and a half feet tall, you couldn't just look into the sanctuary. You had to come around to the gate, and that's where you would enter. And the gate was represented by Christ. We'll come back to that again today. Um, it was very colorful, and it was rectangular. It was longer than it was high. That's going to be re relevant as we go further on. And then as you went in, the first piece of furniture, the largest piece of furniture in the entire sanctuary complex is the brazen altar made of bronze. This is where the daily sacrifices for sin was made. Beyond that, we talked about the, the uh, laver, the, the bronze laver, where washing would happen. And remember, we said that the, 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 um, the, the first stop, uh, the brazen altar, also signifies and represented, it was type for the anti-type of the cross itself. Christ was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And so the cross is represented here. Interestingly, as you come here and you wash, it represents baptism, which also, of course, represents Christ's resurrection. And so you can see that in just the courtyard of the sanctuary, you cover Christ's death, burial, and his resurrection. All of that is done there. The items in the courtyard are all bronze. Because in the scripture, bronze represents justice. One of the interesting facts that we mentioned was that the height of the grate at the bottom of the altar is the same height at the base of the mercy seat in the most holy place justice and mercy on two ends of the sanctuary complex. And once you begin to understand this, the Bible says that uh, in Psalm, David says that thy way, O Lord, is in the sanctuary. You begin to understand the plan of salvation. And what we talked about is that that first stop represents justification. You see, when you accept Jesus Christ into your life, when you fully uh, believe in him, you are justified. Right away, God deals with your sin. The sacrifice that was made on the cross 
is a powerful sacrifice as that blood is applied to your life. And whatever you did is not only forgiven. Oh, the Bible says it even deeper. That God remembers your sin no more. That's why I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian because God does that for me. But as you move further in, I'll just show a couple more pictures. Um, we get to the veil. Or really, this is called the door. And we're going to talk more about that today. But just to show you, it is the outer courtyard, the holy place, and then the most holy place. We'll keep marching through the sanctuary as we go along. These are just some uh, uh, pictorial representations of the pieces of furniture. This being the altar. This being the, uh, the bronze laver where, we, where the washing took place. And of course, there was a veil here and a veil here. This veil is called the door. This one's called the gate. Um, and of course, this remains being called the veil. This is the one, if you would remember, that when Christ died, it was torn from the top to the bottom. And there's a reason, I'm jumping ahead in our sanctuary message stuff here, but the reason it was torn from the top to the bottom is because man couldn't do that. It was about four inches thick, very difficult to tear at all. But it tore from the top to the bottom. And we'll talk more about that significance. But every time I present the sanctuary, I try to not just present it. I want to encapsulate how it plays out in the stories of the Old Testament and maybe even in the New Testament. But for sure, I want to go to Numbers chapter 12. And when I was in Israel, I studied in Israel for two months. I did college credit there. Stayed in a town called Netanya outside of Tel Aviv and learned a little Hebrew and studied Jewish history. And it was quite profound, even took a little ex special excursion to see all of the Christian sites, places like Bethlehem um, and Calvary and, and, and places like that. And when I was there, my teacher, who was actually um, Jewish from Philadelphia, interestingly enough, um, and really took a liking to me, um, would sit with me and talk to me about different Jewish traditions. And this was one of the stories that he brought up to me while I was in Israel. It was a story that spoke to Judaism, from his perspectives, dislike of racism. I thought it was quite profound. Here's the story. The Bible says in Numbers 12 and verse 1, And Miriam and Aaron spake against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married. For he had married an Ethiopian woman. The story starts off with Moses' siblings upset at his choice of who he married. Ethiopia in the Bible is often, if you translate it uh, from the Greek, it means burnt-faced people. So um, she was probably a bit darker than the Jews of the time. All of them lived in the, in the sun-quenched Middle East, so they probably were all pretty tan. But she was probably a little darker and obviously was not a, a Jew in the traditional sense. Verse 2, and they said, Hath the Lord indeed spoken only by Moses? Hath he not spoken also by us? And look at this part. It says, and the Lord did what? He heard it. As there, that's why you got to be careful what you, what you, what you, what you gossip about. God, God hears it. Um, as they're speaking against Moses' wife and basically saying that maybe something's wrong with Moses because he was foolish in who he chose to marry. But God heard it. And then God, uh, there's this comment about Moses that is relevant for our message today as well in verse 3. Numbers 12 and verse 3 says, Now the man Moses was very meek above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. 
The Lord spake suddenly unto Moses. Now, before I go on, one of the things that's incredible is that Moses is highlighted as being especially meek. What is another word for meek? He's humble. Moses was especially humble. This is a man who worked miracles like really no one else um, to that point in earth's history. I want you to think about what it would have been like to be Moses and, and to salter into Pharaoh's palace, take a rod and throw it on the ground and it turns into a serpent. And when they counteract by throwing down their rods of Pharaoh's magicians, Moses' serpent eats their serpent. Now some of us would have been doing a dance like we scored a touchdown if that happened. Moses is able to call flies to come, frogs to come, rivers to turn to blood. Moses works great miracles. He stands before the mighty Red Sea and the waters stand up on themselves. The miracles Moses worked ha, did not make Moses think more of himself than he ought. One of the reasons Moses is, is so well used, such a powerful priest and prophet for God, is because Moses did not let his spiritual success go to his head. And I want to submit to you, part of that is because he spent 40 years in the wilderness tending sheep. I bet you after that he just stayed humble because he probably never wanted to have to go back and do that again. The Bible says the Lord spake suddenly unto Moses and unto Aaron and unto Miriam. And look at what he says here. We're talking about the tabernacle today. He says, come out ye three unto the tabernacle of the congregation. And they three came out. It's like you get in trouble in school and they line all the students up and they say, Walsh, you and so and so step forward. Can you imagine? They step forward. Not knowing what happened. And the Lord came down in the pillar of the cloud. Watch this church. And stood in the door of the tabernacle. This is where we're going to talk about today. The door of the tabernacle. God stood there and called Aaron and Miriam and they both came forth. So now three came forth the first time. Now you know who's in trouble because only two are called of the three. And he said, hear now my words. God speaking. If there be a prophet among you. I, the Lord, my, I will make myself known unto him in a vision and will speak unto him in a dream. God said, listen, if one of you is a prophet, I'm the one that determines who gets spoken to, how they're spoken to. You don't get to criticize Moses, especially not because of who he chose to marry. My servant Moses is not so. I speak to, I speak to prophets in dreams and visions, but Moses, it goes even deeper. He is faithful in all my house. Verse 8, God says, with him will I speak mouth to mouth, even apparently, and not in dark speeches. And the similitude of the Lord shall he behold. Wherefore then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Listen, some of us, you know, growing up there were folk in church who were quick to talk bad about church leadership. I, I, you know, the Bible says that we ought not touch the Lord's anointed. There's a certain respect that you get 
for the office, even if you find it hard to have it for the person. God says, why weren't you afraid to speak this way against my servant Moses? The Bible says, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed, and the cloud departed from off the tabernacle, and behold, Miriam became leprous, white as snow, and Aaron looked upon Miriam, and behold, she was what? Wow. Miriam's skin is lightened because she did not like the darkened skin of Moses' wife. The Bible says the anger of the Lord was kindled against them. The cloud lifts and Miriam is struck with, the disease, with a disease right at the door of the tabernacle. Now, the door of the tabernacle is an interesting part. And you can see there's a little artist rendition. We actually, I, I bought one of these little um, sanctuary models. I haven't got time to put it together yet, but I'm looking forward to it. And in Exodus 36, it says this about the door. It's Exodus 36 and verse 37. And he made a hanging for the tabernacle door of blue and purple and scarlet and fine twined linen of needlework. And the five pillars of it with their hooks and he overlaid their chapters and their fillets, I want to say fillets, but I'm assuming it's fillets, with gold. But their five sockets were of what? Remember I said only, the only furniture that was made of brass is where? In the courtyard. Here we find brass as we enter through this door. And there's spiritual significance to everything we just read. It hung. It was a perfect square. Interestingly, the Bible does not give its dimensions, but unlike the gate that you come in first, the door is a perfect square. It represents Christ. And as you go through, there are colors. Blue represents the law and obedience. Purple, the royalty of Christ. Scarlet, the blood of his sacrifice on the cross. And the fine twine, and of course white is purity, but the fine twine linen of needlework speaks to the perfection that is in Christ. That he came in the flesh. And then there's these five pop pillars. The gold that was put on the pillars was a beaten gold. It represents the beating that Christ took. So everywhere, once we pass through this door, as we go move on in the sanctuary, inside everything is made of this gold. Uh, and that is because Christ is, a, is pure. And when you enter the tabernacle, you enter into the realm of his purity. But the sockets were of brass. What they sat in were of brass, which speaks to the fact that it is at the door that justice and mercy meet. Now watch this. And it came to pass. The door is where God would often do judgment, where you find grace. Exodus 33 and verse 9. And it came to pass as Moses entered into the tabernacle, the cloudy pillar descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle. And the Lord talked with Moses. And all the people saw the cloudy pillar stand at the tabernacle door. A totally different story than the one we were just reading. And all the people rose up and worshipped every man in his tent door. Now, therefore, I pray thee, Moses crying to God for the people, trying to make sure they don't get in trouble. Uh, he says, if I have found grace in thy sight, show me now thy way that I may know thee, that I may find grace in your sight. As I'm studying this, I realize that the door also, it represents Christ. 
It represents a place where mercy and justice meets. It represents grace. Now, do you understand the difference between mercy and grace? It is an important difference every Christian needs to understand. Mercy says you don't get what you deserve. Mercy says, I have, since I have sinned, Eric Walsh is a sinner, and since I have sinned and the wages of sin is death, mercy says you are not going to get what you deserve. Eternal death. Grace says you are going to get what you didn't earn. Oh, y'all missing this thing. In other words, you need grace and mercy. Mercy says, I don't get a, 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 I don't have a place in the lake of fire. Grace says, I have a place in the new Jerusalem. And here's where it meets. It meets at the door. There's a place of grace. A place of judgment. Five pillars. Why? Because five is the number in the Bible. Many biblical numerologists say this. They say that five is the number that represents grace in the Bible. I, I, I couldn't find a direct reference, but I did find this. In Isaiah 9 and verse 6, um, a verse that even, uh, that even um, uh, uh, is recited during uh, Christmas cartoons. Isaiah, Isaiah 9, 6 says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder. And the Bible here gives five names for this, the, the, in, the, in the prophecy of the unborn yet Christ Jesus. Gives five names, and I believe for the five pillars, or you could apply them to the five pillars. The first name is what? Wonderful. The second name for Jesus? Counselor. The third? The Mighty God. The fourth? The Everlasting Father. And the fifth? The Prince of Peace. For those who doubt the divinity of Christ, I don't know how they make sense of Isaiah 9 and verse 6. This speaks to the fact that the door is the divine Christ. He's wonderful. He's a counselor. Have you ever been in need, been at a low point, and needed uh, some counseling? I tell you, you've never met a counselor like Jesus. He's the mighty God. The everlasting father and the prince of peace. He is the door. John 10, 7 through 9 says it like this. Then said Jesus unto them again, verily I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. Powerful. We establish that where God would show up when times of difficulty happen, like when Miriam and Aaron questioned Moses' um, uh, prophetic stance and his leadership and his marriage choices, uh, when the children of Israel were in trouble for other reasons, at the door, God would show up. Why would he show up there? Because it was there that the first bit of judgment would take place. The priests couldn't go into the, into the holy place until they had gone through some things, until they had cleared up some things. James 5, 8 and 9 says, But be ye also patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. And look at verse 9. 
Grudge not one against another, just like Miriam and Aaron. Brethren, lest ye be condemned. The judge stands where? Before the door. Prophetically, church, we are standing before the door. Prophetically, we're standing before the door because we are living in a time of judgment. We'll talk more about that later on. We are also standing at the time of the soon coming of Christ. Remember, if, if the brazen altar represents the cross and the laver represents the resurrection, to the disciples after the resurrection, they hoped every day of the rest of their lives that they would see Jesus coming in the clouds of glory. They were praying and hoping every day that they would see the second coming of Christ. It is at the door that the hope and the promise of the second coming becomes alive for the church of Christ. And let me tell you something, church. We're standing at the door prophetically. Matthew chapter 24, verse 6, And ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass. But the end is what? It's not yet. For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be what? Famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. Verse 8 is the most Startling of them all. All these are the what? Just the beginning of sorrows. I want you to understand that here we stand as a church. Right here in Matthew 24, 6 through 8. Chapter 6 having been properly fulfilled in the, in the century of wars that was last century. World War I, World War II, Vietnam, uh, the, 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 the wars uh, in, in places like the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Last century was a, a brutal, bloody war where tens of uh, uh, hundreds of thousands lost their lives and the landscape of the world was changed. It has been, uh, the prophecy has not only been stated, it has been fulfilled. Go on with more of them, but even now we're dealing with war. We pulled out of Afghanistan recently. And here, I think this one is from um, one of the big news uh, agencies. They say four reasons a potential Taliban takeover in Af Afghanistan matters to the world. And all of a sudden, we are back after 20-plus years of war in Afghanistan. It's as if overnight it never even happened. Things are moving right back to where they were prophetically. This world is so unstable. You've got to get this, church. It's so unstable that you are going to continue to see conflict and pressures. Right now, it seems like the world is at peace. But I can, I can tell you, we are not that far away. It wouldn't take much for China to move militarily. Uh, even uh, Russia and the United States don't see eye to eye. It, it, we are in a, a, a time of tension between the nations. We are also, as I said, pestilence. We are seemingly in a never-ending pandemic. In June, the numbers started to plummet, and everybody began to unmask, and everything opened up, and now it looks like the pandemic uh, from like six, seven months ago in much of the country. In, in fact, especially in the South, where states like Louisiana and Florida uh, account for, like I think, the majority of the COVID hospitalizations now. Texas, if you throw it in, is in there as well. I can tell you in my own family and in my own life, just recently, some of my good friends have been hospitalized 
Uh, some of my relatives hospitalized with this virus. It is as if this pandemic does not want to end. And we, we, I read to you last year uh, from, from the spirit of prophecy where Sister White says that the enemy himself messes with nature. Now we face variants Delta, Gamma, and Lambda. It's also been a summer of fires. We're talking prophecy now. The Siberian wildfires in Siberia, Russia. I didn't even you know it get warm enough in, in Siberia to have a fire. The Siberian wildfires now bigger than all other fires in the world combined. This is a satellite map showing you how much the smoke is covering the earth. Talking prophecy, I'm telling you that we are at the door. Greek island is the new epicenter of Europe's summer of calamity. And I, I cut off the picture, but even in Greece, fires are raging. Devastating wildfires of 2021 are breaking records and satellites are tracking it all. We are watching as never before. This is, these are wildfires in Serbia. Normally when we talk wildfires, you think California. The whole world is seeing fires come up like never before. And of course... It's all tied to climate change. July is the world's hottest month ever recorded. So if you don't even want to believe the Bible that the world is in trouble and that the world has an end point, maybe you choose to believe the secular folk and scientists who are also at the saying that the world is at a brink. And we're going to talk about that more here in a second. The rising floods. Remember, we're at the door. Summer of floods, and this is in China. Um, and of course, there were some, um, um, the deadly downpours around the world, and here's, this man is carrying a child through the flooded waters. In Europe, floods uh, killed at least 120 dead. And I want you to notice how these stories come from all over the world. And in answer to that, the Pope is urging politicians to take drastic measures on climate change. Pope Francis in Earth Day messages warns we are at the edge on climate change. And in fact, the cry is that we need a climate miracle now. One reporter says we found it, that Biden and Pope Francis could make a climate change miracle. One of the things that's been floated, for, for Adventists this is relevant, is the idea of an environmental Sabbath. That one day a week, probably a Sunday, would be chosen to close down businesses, shut down travel, so that we spared a carbon release on that day. Church, we are at the door. And we will see more of this. It will become more and more powerful in, in, its, in its ramifications. But if we're at the door, that means it's time for us to serve. And if it's time for us to serve, we go back to 1 Peter 2 and verse 9. It says, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You are a peculiar people. Now, that doesn't mean that we are weird. It means we are different, that we're set apart. The priests were not allowed to drink alcohol. 
The priests had to be sober. They had to carry themselves a certain way. As we're going to see, they had to dress to do their duties a certain way. I want to submit to you that as a nation, a chosen people, as a royal priesthood, there is a reason the world is trying so hard to intoxicate you. That's why the Bible says over and over and over again, be sober, be vigilant. Your adversary, the devil, walketh about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. That's why there is a cry to be sober, to be sober, to be sober. Because when the frontal lobe of your brain is washed over by alcohol, as it is metabolized in the brain, uh, we are uh, then in a state where we don't reason well. And salvation, as I've said before, from Isaiah 1 and uh, verse uh, 18, uh, salvation is an exercise in reasoning. Come, let us Reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. If you can't think straight, if you can't reason, if you're not a peculiar in this generation, if you're not different from everyone else, when I'm at work, every time things get stressful, you know what people say? I need a drink. It could be Tuesday morning at 9 o'clock. I'm glad that when I get stressed, I say, hey, listen, I need a little time with my Lord. I found that, there, that all the intoxicants in the world cannot do what a relationship with Jesus Christ can. You see, one of his titles was Prince of Peace. Some don't have peace in their life and they think they can smoke weed to get it. I went in to see a patient this week, a young, a young lady in her 20s, and, um, and, and when I walked into the room, Thought I was at a Bob Marley's concert in 1975. I mean, the smell of weed was wafing through the whole clinic. She worried she has COVID, and I, and, and I walk in, I said, how much do you smoke? I mean, I couldn't even hold it. She was like, I don't smoke much, just once a day. And I had to explain to her, yeah, this will not only make you make bad decisions, they don't tell you that marijuana also, because it's anti-inflammatory, reduces some aspects of your immune system. So if you're really worried about COVID, smoking weed is probably one of the worst things you could do. We are to be different. We don't celebrate intoxication. We don't celebrate unrighteousness, the depravity of this world. You have been called to be a priest in the house of the living God. In the last message, I talked about the fact that at the labor, we have the opportunity to go from sinner to priest. To be a priest means you're different. The Levites were set apart. You've been called. And I'm so glad God gives us not just the calling. He gives us the power to be what he has asked us to be. So that we can proclaim to others the praises of him who's called us out of the darkness into this marvelous light. This is what Revelation says about our priesthood. Revelation chapter 1, verse 5 through 7. And from Jesus Christ, who is, faith, who is the faithful witness, and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, there's the labor, and hath made us kings and priests unto God his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. In the blood of Christ, in being washed in his blood, you have been made kings and queens and priests in Christ. 
You don't live like everybody else lives on earth. The sacrifice that he made means that we have chosen a different way to live. We don't watch the filth the world watches or listen to the same music the world listens to. You've been called out. You've been made a priest. But look at where it transitions to. It transitions from the, the symbolism of the labor and the washing to the priest, which we were talking about, to the second coming. Seven, behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him. Dimitri mentioned that earlier. And every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. It switches from your being, becoming a priest to the soon coming of our Lord. Ah, you have been called at such a time as this to go into the rural reaches of Thailand and bring the gospel to children who might not ever know Christ Jesus. You've been called on your job to live as a Christian so other people will ask when this place is going to chaos and a mess, how do you stay so, uh, uh, so personable, so kind, so calm? And you can share as a priest the light of Christ Jesus. You've been called in your house. No matter what's going on in your family, you've been called to be a priest and to lift up the light of Christ Jesus there. To be a priest means I've got to take off my old clothing, the clothing of my own depravity, my sin, my past life. I've got to take it off, and the priest is called to put on new clothing. What did the priest wear? Exodus 28, 9, uh, sorry, 39 through 41. And it says, And thou shalt embroider the coat of fine linen. Now shalt make the miter of fine linen, and thou shalt make the girdle of needlework. And here's where we come in. And for Aaron's sons, thou shalt make coats, fine linen. Now shalt make for them girdles and bonnets, uh, shalt thou make for them, for glory and for what? Ah, don't miss this, church. The symbolism of what the priests wear, because we're, we're going to talk later on when we get to the most holy place about what the high priest wore and all of its symbolism. But you as a priest also have something to wear. You have to wear a linen coat and a girdle. You also have to put something on your head. All of it made of fine linen. It all represents what? The righteousness of who? Of Christ. You remember in the story of the prodigal. When the prodigal son is walking back. Barely probably able to walk. Tired, malnourished, beaten down. Having spent all of his money that his father gave him his entire inheritance wasted he had been eating the slop that the pigs ate as he's staggering barely making it down the walkway to his father's uh, uh, estate his daddy is waiting on the porch can you imagine looking out hoping every day to see his son return he didn't have a phone. He couldn't shoot him a text in the pig pen and ask him how he was doing. Couldn't look him up on Facebook. He had to wait and hope. And when his father saw him coming, the prodigal is walking. 
But the father comes running. Can you imagine when he gets to his son and he sees his dirty clothes and the stench of pigs, the sweat on him, his emaciated being. The father does not want anyone to see his ear in this condition. So what does the father do? Go and get my robe. And that is what is put on his sinful son. Oh, church, if you understood the meaning of this one. When you come to Christ, it's his robe he puts on you. It's his righteousness that covers you. No matter how far into sin you ever sunk, no matter how bad you ever lived, no matter how far down into the muck of the pig pen your legs went, no matter how full your belly was with the husks that the pigs ate, when you get back to your father, he throws a robe on you to cover the mess that you were. Ah, again, that's why I'm a Christian. And I love the fact that I get to put on the robe. You're going to see that when we go into the holy place, there's, there's, there are things that we as priests are to do. But as a teaser, here's what Acts 20 and verse 28 says. It says, take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. You have been called. Every one of us has been called just as the apostles were called. You've been made overseers by the Holy Ghost. It's our job to feed the church that was purchased by his blood. Peter says it like this. Talking about the judgment, the way that the priests were, had, they had to be, you couldn't just walk into the holy place. They, they had to, there was an inspection that had to happen. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? To be the first in the judgment is a good thing. I didn't notice growing up. It's a good thing because you see when Jesus comes, he says, behold, I come in my what? My reward is with me. The first people to get a reward are the first people who get judged. And that first reward is a ride to the new Jerusalem. It is eternal life. But Peter goes on, he says, and if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? He says, listen, even the righteous are saved by the blood of Christ, scarcely saved because the whole time that the father is trying to put the robe on the prodigal, he's probably trying not to accept it. Let me tell you something. We've been given a privilege to know this precious truth. Verse 19, wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. You have been called. And every day when you get up, you are not to just remain in the courtyard. You're not supposed to just stay there dealing with your past sin and dealing with the fact that you've been washed. You are to get up and spend time with God. Analyze yourself. 
put on the, the, the linen, the, the robe of, uh, and the coat of the priest. You're supposed to leave your house as a priest going into the world to, to serve and to share. Watch this. That is something that must happen not just daily, not even hourly. But as we go through the day, moment by moment, we ought to reconsecrate ourselves to God. You're going to see in the next one of these that we do. Our God supplies what we need to be priests and gives us instruction as to how we are to be a benefit to this world. God didn't call you into this marvelous light to, to, to sit on the bench or worse, sit in the stands. He called you to get on the court, to be involved in ministry. Spirit of Prophecy Testimonies for the Church, Volume 2. Those who are living amid the perils of the last days, days which are characterized by the masses turning from the truth of God to fables, will have close work to turn from fables, will, will have close work to turn from the fables which are prepared for them on every hand and have an appetite to feast upon unpopular truth. Those who turn from these fables to truth are despised, hated, and persecuted by those who are presenting fables to the people for their reception. Satan is at war with the remnant who are endeavoring to keep the commandments of God and the testimony of Jesus. Evil angels are commissioned to employ men as their agents upon earth. These can the most successfully uh, exert these can the most successfully exert an influence to make Satan's attacks effective against the remnant whom God calls a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people that ye should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into this into his marvelous light. This Satan is determined to hinder. He does not want you to be a priest. He will employ everyone who will engage in his service to hinder the chosen people of God from showing forth the praises of him who has called them from darkness into his marvelous light, to hide, to cover up this light, to cause people to distrust it, to disbelieve it, is the work of the great rebel and his host. While Jesus is purifying his people unto himself, redeeming them from all iniquity, Satan will employ his forces to hinder the work and prevent the perfection of the saints. He does not exert his power upon those who are all covered up with deception and, and walled in by fables and error and who make no effort to receive and obey the truth. He knows he is sure of them. Watch this, church. But those who are seeking for truth, that they may obey it in the love of it, are the ones who excite his malice and stir his ire. He can never weaken them while they keep close to Jesus. Therefore, he is pleased when he can lead them in a course of disobedience. You, church, have been called. There's a reason, as Adventists, we keep the seventh-day Sabbath. It is by recognizing the truths of the commandments and committing our lives to being faithful, not in our own strength, but by the power of Christ Jesus. As we follow him and do what he says do, 
Power is heaped upon us to be even more faithful. His grace and his mercy are magnified in our lives as we say we will stay firm and true to what our Father requires of us. Aaron and Miriam had to learn this lesson the hard way. Numbers 12 and verse 11, and Aaron said unto Moses, Alas, my Lord. A minute ago he wasn't ready to be up. We don't know why God only speaks to him. But now Aaron is saying, listen, my Lord, I beseech thee, lay not the sin upon us, wherein we have done foolishly and wherein we have sinned. Let her not be as one dead. Aaron starts to plead for his sister. I would imagine Aaron's pretty scared at this point. He's going to get leprosy too. He's probably like, look, Moses, fix her, please, brother, because I don't want that thing coming off on me. Let her not be as one dead of whom the flesh is half consumed when he cometh out of his mother's womb. Don't allow this to happen to our sister Moses. And Moses cried unto the Lord. This is why Moses is who Moses is. A lot of other folk would have been like, listen, you shouldn't have been talking about my woman. Get what you deserve. You leave my woman alone. I got a good woman. Moses says no. He takes it straight to God and he says, Heal her now, O God, I beseech thee. Moses has no, he holds no grudge against his sister. There are families that, can, that seem like they'll never come together. We ought not hold grudges. Moses pleads for his sister like we ought to plead for our brothers and sisters. Please to God for their healing. The Lord said unto Moses, if her father had but spit in her face, should she not be ashamed seven days? He said, listen, if she had insulted her earthly father, wouldn't she be living in, wouldn't she be shamed in the congregation if she just insulted her, her, her earthly father? God said, listen, let her be shut out from the camp for seven days. And after that, she can come in and be received again. Numbers 12 and verse 15 says it like this, and Miriam was shut out from the camp Seven days. And here's why this is important. And the people journeyed not till Miriam was brought in again. The entire movement of the children of Israel stopped when one who was supposed to function in a way that pleased God, like we are to function as priests and kings in the house of God, when Miriam slipped up and had to be punished, no one could move. The lesson from this story is that when we collectively want to move as a church, we move together. We, we call on God's name for one another. We plead to God for one another. We're going to talk about that when we get into the holy place. We're going to talk about the, 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 the altar of incense. But I want to submit to you that there is a requirement for the Christian to always be pleading on behalf of others. Even those who don't like you. Even those who despise you. You see, that is the office of the priest. It is to sacrifice your own... Huh, earthly fleshly sensibilities to be a person of humility and meekness like Moses 
That is the calling of Jesus Christ. Makes no sense you spend years mad at an ex, mad at a parent, mad at a former boss or co-worker. You can let all of that go. You can forgive them. But you can go even further. You can call on the name of the Lord for them. I'll never forget, I, I, I've told you the stories of how when I was in high school, um, I went to a school where they, there were a lot of neo-Nazis and a, a lot of racism. They swastiked the synagogue that was built across the street from my high school. And uh, I was regularly called racial, epith uh, uh, racial derogatory terms. So bad, even some of the teachers would join in. And in anger, I've told you this before, in anger, I, I became more of a, of a black nationalist until God led me out of that. I'm so glad God taught me the lesson I think he taught Miriam and Aaron here, and that is skin is temporary. Much pride as Miriam put in her skin, it was quickly leprous. And I had to learn that lesson, that God is not a respecter of person. God isn't concerned with the color of your skin, he's concerned with the content of your character. And I'll never forget, I was riding through northeast, northwest Georgia, going over a hill in my mother's old Cutler Sierra I had driven from Miami on my way to Oakwood College to return to school. My brother David and I were in the car, and I was riding. My friends Teddy and Leon, those guys were in cars in front of us. Not old Cutler Sierra. I don't, think, I don't know if they make them anymore, but I would never buy one. And that thing was going up the hill like chitty, chitty, bang, bang. I didn't know it was going to make it. It was making all kinds of noises and sounds and groanings and utterings. It was one of those Georgia days when it rains. And it was like someone turned on a faucet. So my friends took off. And again, we didn't, we didn't have cell phones. So they took off. They just they took off ahead of me. I got to the top of that hill, church. And that car died. I got excited because I knew how to start it in such a situation. But I did it too fast. And I heard the engine make a sound like a plane had hit a wall. Boom. And then I just saw a smoke. Here I am in the woods of Georgia trying to take a shortcut. My friends have left me. My brother is sitting next to me. Rain is falling. I'm sure the rain like Noah saw. And as I'm sitting in the car, I'm in rural Georgia, all the stuff from high school comes flooding back. I'm sure we are finished. And just on time, a pickup truck comes up behind us. I don't remember actually seeing a gun in the back window, but I'm going to say there was one there. And I, I, I bowed my head and I prayed. I said, Lord, help us. While I was there praying, there was a knock on the glass. Now, the car was so messed up, 
I couldn't even wind down the window. The electric, whole electric window system was all messed up. So I had to open the door in the rain to talk to a young white gentleman that I thought for sure was probably there to tell me I need to get out of his town. But you know what he said to me? He says, looks like you guys could use some help. With two young white men in that truck behind me. They got out of their car and did what my, my, neither myself nor my brother could do then nor now. They got that car to run again. And I was able to drive that car down the other side of the hill to a phone booth, call my mother, who called AAA, and got that car towed all the way from there to Huntsville, Alabama, where I saw my friends and asked them, did they not miss the fact that we were no longer behind them? <laughs> I close with that story for this reason. To tell you that God has priests all over the place. Those two young men have no idea how they changed my world view. I submit to you, and I bet you if I could go back and ask them, those are two Christian young men. I submit to you that this is what we are called to be. The salt of the earth. We are to be there to lend a helping hand. To go above and beyond. To show the love of Christ even when it seems it makes no sense. To put on the white linen garment and stand before the door knowing that Jesus is about to return, that judgment is about to begin for on this planet. It's our job to be the light. I submit to you today, that is an awesome responsibility, but it is also an awesome privilege. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the great story in Numbers chapter 12 of Aaron, Miriam, and Moses, and Moses' Ethiopian wife. Lord, we ask that the meekness and humility that was found in Moses would be found in us. I pray, Lord, that we would each now stand up to the calling that has been put on us, the calling to be priests, a royal priesthood, kings and priests in your house. Fit, Lord, to judge during the millennium even the fallen angels. I pray, Lord, that none of us take this responsibility lightly, that we prepare ourselves for the work that you have for us. For Lord, we want to finish the work here on earth and go home. This is our prayer in Jesus' precious and holy name. Let the church say amen and amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org